when you think about prayer. So very basically, what is the spiritual discipline of prayer? Most simply, we would say prayer is talking to God. Okay, That's probably something you learned in children's Sunday school way back when you were a youngster. Somebody sat you down and said, look, prayer is just talking to God. That's good and that's fine. But I'm just looking around the room. Not many of you belong in the age group of children's Sunday school anymore. You may teach children's Sunday school, but that's not your class. And I'm saying to you, you've got to move past that. You've got to add to it. You don't change the idea that prayer is talking to God. You don't get rid of it, but you've got to sort of develop that a little bit. And if all you think about prayer, oh, prayer is just, all you've got to do is talk to God. What I'm going to suggest to you is that not all prayer, not all talking to God is really good. Not all of the things we may just say to God actually fall under what the Bible is describing in this spiritual discipline of prayer. So, most simply, it is talking to God. Let's add to that a little bit. Prayer is the experience of relationship. It's the actual experience of relationship. So, I thought about this over the last week. When we were in Kentucky, I pastored a small church called North Benson Baptist Church. It was out in the country. Most of our church members lived out around the church, out in the country. And I had a deacon named Alvin Wright. He was my best buddy at the church. He's much older than I am. But he would stop by the church multiple times a week, almost every day, just to stop and to visit, to walk in, sit down. We'd look each other in the face, and we'd visit. And you do that almost every day for about four years, and you become pretty good friends with somebody. You build a relationship as you look them in the eyeballs, and you talk, and you communicate, and you listen. And like most relationships, you can think of some in your life that that are like this. You move away from a person. You don't live close to them anymore. We still talk on the phone. I talked to his wife just this last week, and you hear that voice, and you feel a connection again, and you feel like your relationship is still there. But time goes by where you don't visit as much as you used to. And the relationship that was once very close and intimate, it's not gone, but it changes. Prayer is how you actually experience relationship with God. Prayer is only as good as your theology. That's the next bullet point. It's only as good as your theology. If you have poor doctrine, if you have unbiblical ideas about God, your prayer life is about to take a terrible detour. So if you fall into the camp of, let's just pick a few things, let's say open theism. Okay, Open theism is a, a theological framework that says God does not know the future. The future is open. It hasn't happened yet. God can't know it because it doesn't exist. He knows everything that exists, but he doesn't know the future because it hasn't happened yet. He's a really good guesser, but he really doesn't know. Okay? If that's your framework for theology, that's going to affect the way you pray. Obviously, right? Another example, if your theological framework is built around the idea that human beings are basically good, that we're just pretty good people, and what we need from God, one author I read this week said, uh, some people believe 
that what we need from God is just a little bit of grace that's kind of like a, a Red Bull in the morning. Like, you're up, you're moving, you just need a little oomph to get going. And that's what God's grace is to you. You're good, you're up, you're going, you just need a little sort of nudge to get going. And your idea is that we're pretty good people on the whole. That's going to dramatically affect the way you talk to God and the way you don't talk to God, the things you may say or may not say to him. Number three, keep this in mind, prayer is not a conversation between equals. It is not a conversation between equals. If you lose that idea, your prayer life is about to go in a bad direction. Number four, prayer is our response to God's word. I'm not going to talk about this a whole lot because we've talked about it the last two weeks, but I've told you that Bible intake, Bible reading, listening to the Bible, listening to preaching, uh, going to Bible studies. Bible intake is the foundational and the primary, meaning the first spiritual discipline. And if there is no Bible intake, if you're not listening to what God has already said to you, you don't really have anything to say to him. You don't know what to say to him. God speaks first to us in the scriptures. God speaks first, and prayer is our response to what God has already said. So many people, you know people like this. Maybe you've fallen for this trap. So many people, especially in the Bible Belt, view prayer as this conversation where they sit down and they try to get really quiet and they try to listen to something they think God is saying to them and then they want to talk back and have a back and forth. And I've known people like that, and they've told me some of the things that God has said to them, and I've thought, God did not say that to you. What you're telling me directly contradicts what he's already said in his word. God did not say that to you. Your job in prayer is not to sit down and just try to get still enough and quiet enough that you hear something or you feel something, or God just sort of beams down this message to you. Your job in prayer is to listen to what he says in the Bible, and then to respond in prayer. It's our response to his word. Number five, prayer is about getting God more than getting things from God. And if your view of prayer is backwards, then you need to flip it around. If you think, oh yeah, prayer, that's when you come to God and you ask for this, 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 and this, you've got to sort of hit the brakes and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Prayer isn't so much about getting things from God as it is getting God himself. Delight in the Lord and you get the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean delight in the Lord and you get a million dollars. That means delight in the Lord and you get the Lord. That's the idea of prayer. Prayer is getting God. It's experiencing relationship with God. It is not primarily about getting things from God or getting God to do things for you. Very easily, millions of Americans fall into the trap with prayer where really they don't treat God any differently than Aladdin treats the genie when he rubs the lamp. And the genie comes out and his job is just to do what Aladdin wishes him to do. And if that's your idea of prayer, like you rub the lamp and God's there and you have access to him and you just get to ask him, do this, do this, do this, do this, give me this, give me this, give me this, you've missed it. The point isn't to get things from God, but the point is to get God. So how do we actually do it? Let me suggest to you that you use 
the LACTS model for prayer. And a lot of you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've heard about the ACTS model, but I don't know what this is. Hang with me, okay? I'm going to give you these five statements. Let's just fill all the blanks in, and then we can flip through the scriptures and think about them, okay? Number one is lament. Number two is adoration. Number three is confession. Number four is thanksgiving. And number five is supplication. And a lot of you have been trained or been taught by someone to do acts, starting with adoration. And that's good, and I'm not saying it's bad, but I just think it's missing one biblical component of prayer. So I'll let you fill those blanks in. Lament, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Our youth are doing the same study on Wednesday night, and I've given Hunter my notes in advance, and uh, he's teaching the same content to our youth, and they're discussing it. He came to me, and uh, we try to discuss the lesson each week and talk about you know, how we're going to teach it and what we're going to bring up. And Hunter asked a good question about this. He said, it seems strange to me that you put, he's asking me, you put the L for lament at the beginning of this. He said, I've always been taught that the first thing you should do in prayer is you should adore God. You should praise Him. You should you know, thank Him or not thank Him, but acknowledge Him for who He is. That should come first. Why would you put this first? And my answer to him was twofold. Number one, if you're going to have an acrostic, that's the only place you can put the L. It doesn't work anywhere else. It doesn't sound like anything. Number two, and more importantly... In the book of Psalms, when you come across laments, not all of the time, but many times, the lament comes before anything else. In fact, sometimes in the book of Psalms, you don't even get to A, C, T, or S. All it is is L. What is a lament? It is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. In the Bible, they're very raw. They're very honest. They are never irreverent. Okay? Sometimes you have heard someone say or you've been taught, you can say anything to God. It's on your heart. He knows it anyways. Just be honest with him. Say whatever you want. I say baloney. He does know what's on your heart. You're not hiding anything from him. But there are some things you don't need to say to God. And there are examples in the Bible where people opened their mouth and said things to God and then later came back and said, I, I shouldn't have said that. I want to take that back. I want to repent of that. This is not just a, a blank check for you to just go and say whatever you want to God, but this is a raw, honest, passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Look at Psalm 44, just to give you one example. And as you turn to Psalm 44, I'll just let you know that in the 150 psalms that we have in the Bible, there are psalms of praise, there are psalms of lament, there are psalms of thanksgiving, uh, there are psalms that talk about the king, there's all these different types of psalms. The most common type or the most common genre that you'll find in the book of psalms is lament. There's more of it in the book of Psalms than any other type of prayer or song or anything else. So look at Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears and our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. With your hand, with your own hand, 
drove out the nations. You, with your own hand, excuse me, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but you set, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. That's a bunch of adoration mixed with thanksgiving verse 9 but you have rejected us and disgraced us and you have not gone out with our armies you have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil you have made us like sheep for slaughter you have scattered us among the nations You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secret of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then the end is an actual request. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There's honest lament in there. We've had the snot kicked out of us. We didn't turn on you and this terrible thing has come upon us. Where are you? Why have you forgotten us? That's just one example of lament. And sometimes, uh, as we think about prayer, we leave that out. We forget that in our communication with God, there is a place for honest, intense expression of grief and sorrow. There's not a place in your prayer life for being disrespectful. There isn't a place in your prayer life for doing what Job did and putting your place in the judge over God. But there is a place to ask God, why are you doing this? What is going on? I don't understand this. It feels like you've abandoned me. And the book of Psalms is filled with that. So that's just a taste of lament. Adoration. This is basically acknowledging God as God. And what you'll find when you read through the Bible and you look at how people prayed in the Bible, this is one of the most common ways that people prayed. We skip over this super quick so that we can get to the requests. People in the Bible tarried over this one. They spent a lot of time on this one, and they spent a tiny bit of time on the request. So one of my favorite examples of adoration is 1 Samuel. If you look in the Old Testament, 
chapter 2. This is a prayer we'll talk about when we get into our, uh, one of our upcoming series on Bible heroes, Old Testament heroes. We're going to talk about Hannah. Just look at how Hannah prayed. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1, Hannah prayed, and she said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. You just hit the pause button. You think about this is a woman talking to God. Is she telling God anything he doesn't know? He knows all this, right? He knows there's none holy like me. There's none beside me. There is no rock like me for my people. He knows these things, and yet over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God's people just acknowledge these things. They say these things. They praise him, and they adore him for who he is. Third is confession. This is just acknowledging your sin before God. And if you will flip over to the right, past the book of Psalms, and find the book of Daniel, we'll get a little taste of confession in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9, we'll start in verse 3. Daniel says, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And you read that verse in verse 4 and you say, wait a minute. He's talking about God. I thought he was going to go into confession. Why does he talk about who God is? If you don't understand the truth about God, you will never be moved to true confession. First, you start with an understanding of God and his holiness. Then you're moved to a place of confession. And that's what Daniel shows us here. Verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and, the rule, and your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, princes, fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. And it goes on and on and on. It's one of the most moving prayers of confession in the Bible, simply acknowledging his sin. Thanksgiving. That one is, I think, pretty straightforward. You can look at Psalm 136 for that. You can also look at Psalm 100. I should have written Psalm 100 in there for you. Uh, it's the only psalm with a heading that says this psalm is specifically for giving thanks. Here's what's interesting in Psalm 100. The one psalm written to give thanks. The only one with that note. He does not thank God for his car or his chariot or his house, or anything, he thanks God that God is God. And he thanks God for his grace and his mercy in his life. Even thanksgiving in the Bible is very rarely focused on things like we do. And you know we do that. You've done the thanksgiving thing where you go around the table and everyone says something they're thankful for. And somebody takes, you know, the good stuff, family or I'm thankful for church, or I'm thankful for Jesus. And then we're kind of prone to say, you know, well, I'm thankful for my house. Well, I'm thankful to live in this country. Well, I'm, thank I'm thankful for the things that I have. Our mind so quickly goes to things as opposed to thanking God that he's God. The last is supplication. That's where you ask God to do something for you. 
And there's some great examples of that in Ephesians 3 and 6. We're going to read Ephesians 6 later. What you will find when you go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and you look at people who prayed and their prayers are recorded in Scripture, they do very little of this. Very little. There's a lot of places where they don't do it at all. The whole prayer is adoration. Or the whole prayer is adoration and confession. Or it's confession and thanksgiving. Or sometimes it's lament mixed with one of these other things. Very rarely do prayers in the Bible end up being dominated with God do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's almost like it's a tag along at the end of of prayers in the Bible. That the focus is on these other things and supplication just sort of gets tacked on to the end. So there's a, a model to use as you pray, thinking about different ways you can pray. How do you learn to pray better? One, study the prayers of the Bible. That's sort of what we just did. Number two, spend time praying with others. And what I really mean is listening to others pray. should have written that a little bit differently and just said what I mean. But sometimes when you pray with other people and you listen to them pray, you think, I would have never thought to say it that way. Sometimes that's a bad thing and you say, I don't want to say it that way. But sometimes you say, wow, I'm listening to this person experience their relationship with God and I see something in my life or my prayer life that's missing or deficient. So listen to other people pray who know how to pray. And then lastly, rocket science, pray. You learn by doing it. You don't really learn by reading a book about it. You don't really learn by just listening to other people do it. You learn by doing it. Another suggestion, combine prayer with physical activity. How many of you have ever found yourself praying And then you realized you had somehow stopped praying and you were thinking about something else. Raise your hand. If your hand's down, you're a big fat liar. All of us do that. How many of you have fallen asleep praying? Prayer is hard. It's not easy to do it right. It's easy to do it wrong. It is not easy to do it right. And one way to help with that is to combine a physical activity with prayer. So just a couple of examples. One would be journaling, writing down your prayers. Um, For me personally, that's the single most helpful thing if I want to pray for a sustained period of time. I just have a hard time focusing on one thing when I'm still and quiet. It's just, it's hard for my brain to do that. But if I'm writing my prayer down, it forces me to slow down It forces me to be thoughtful. It forces me to think about what I'm saying before it just blurts out of my mouth. And it keeps my attention on what I'm actually doing. Uh, Other examples would be walking, just physically moving, exercise of some kind while you're praying, just so that you're, you're not falling asleep or you're not as prone to distraction. A few more thoughts about how you do it. We should pray individually and corporately individually and corporately. Both of those are important. Look quickly at Matthew 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is giving instruction about prayer. In Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And the contrast that Jesus is painting there is, look, these guys do it publicly and it's just this big show and it doesn't need to be that for you. There needs to be just you and God. It's not a show, it's a relationship. And you need to do this privately and you need to do it alone and no one else really needs to be a part of it. That's the individual component. And then it's almost, we miss it so easily, but if you keep reading and you get to what we call the Lord's Prayer, you look at verse 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, all of the first person pronouns are plural. It's not my father. It's not give me my daily bread. It's not forgive me my debts. It's not as, as I have forgiven others. It's not lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. It's us and our and we. And it's this corporate aspect that we talk to God not only individually, but also as God's people. And we do it corporately. And I've given you all sorts of verses in the book of Acts that give you both sides of this. Individual prayer and corporate prayer. Uh, prayer. Moving on. We should pray regularly and spontaneously. Regularly and spontaneously. I'm going to let you look up Nehemiah 1 and 2. A quick summary of it is Nehemiah gets bad news about his homeland and he stops what he's doing and he devotes an extended period of time to prayer. Intentional. He's not doing anything else. It's blocked out time so that he can pray and fast and seek God's will. Then he goes and he takes action on what he just prayed about. And he goes and he talks to the king about going back to rebuild the wall. And there's an interesting verse in chapter 2, verse 5, where he spent all of this time devoted to doing nothing but praying, and then he's there, and he's talking to the king, and it's time to open his mouth and ask for what he's come to ask for, and it says, he prayed. Just really quick, like one more prayer. I know I did this for a couple of days, that was specific time, now just a spontaneous quick, I need to pray. And you see that all the way through Nehemiah. Sometimes he stops, he doesn't do anything else but pray. Sometimes he's busy building a wall or holding a sword, standing guard, and in the middle of that, it's just a spontaneous throwing a prayer up, asking God to, doing so, uh, to do something for him, praising God for who, for who he is or thanking him for what he's done. So we pray regularly and spontaneously. Lastly, we should pray briefly and at all times. And I want to take you to Ecclesiastes 5. If you can find Psalms and Proverbs, just flip over to the right and you'll find Ecclesiastes. We watched the video of Dr. Whitney explaining what does it mean to pray without ceasing. And I've listed verses here that talk about praying without ceasing. And I like his explanation. He says it's, it's without losing heart. You persist in it. You don't give up in it. And it's also not a 24-7 thing, but it's being one thought away from prayer, being quick to go to prayer. Ecclesiastes 5, I think, is wisdom that tempers that a little bit. And we'll just read Ecclesiastes 5, 1-7. It says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. And I think you and I need to struggle with the tension that the Bible is describing. In one side of the equation, we're, we're called to pray without ceasing. Always be quick to prayer. With confidence and boldness, draw near to the throne of grace. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But I think if, if us as Baptists make any mistake in prayer, it's that we become way too casual in it. Way too flippant about it. And I think Ecclesiastes gives us a pretty good warning. It doesn't negate any of the other things we just said about prayer, but it does say you need to remember this is not a conversation between equals. God is God in heaven and you're here on the earth. And there needs to be caution before you just open your mouth and start spitting things out. And there needs to be a reverence and a fear and a respect for God before you just start flapping your gums. So I'll let you wrestle with that. And honestly, I think, I think the Bible wants us to wrestle with it. The Bible doesn't just give you one side of that. It gives you both sides of that. Let your words be few. And yet at the same time, pray without ceasing. And always we wrestle. Am I, am I cautious and respectful and deferent when I come before God? Or am I just rushing in like a fool saying a bunch of things that I don't need to say? You can, you can work out the tension there. Why should you do it? Just a few ideas and we'll wrap this up. Number one, Jesus prayed. If the Son of God thought it was necessary to pray, then you probably need to also. And I've given you just a sampling of verses that describe Jesus going out. Sometimes he went out and he prayed all night. Sometimes he went out and he prayed alone. Sometimes he got some of his friends with him and they prayed together. But throughout the Gospels we read, he prayed, he prayed, he prayed. It means we probably should follow that example. Number two, Jesus assumes that you will pray. We read Matthew 6. It doesn't say if you feel like praying or if you decide to pray, but he says when you pray, this is how I want you to do it. He assumes that that's going to be part of your life. Number three, we are commanded to pray. And in the video by Whitney, he mentioned Luke 18.1. It's Jesus telling a parable about a woman. And the point of the parable in Luke 18.1 is that we would always pray and not lose heart. So he commands us to do it. Number four, why should we do it? It's inherently relational. It's how we experience our relationship with God. Next one, and we're going to look up these verses in Romans. Prayer is powered by Trinitarian grace. Trinitarian grace. Flip over to Romans 8. 
I've been studying lately for our next Wednesday night series. We're going to talk about the five solas of the Reformation. And I've been reading different things about Catholicism and Protestantism and Luther and the things that he objected to. And it's interesting to see the objections that Luther and Calvin and the other reformers had to the Catholic practice of praying to saints and praying to all of these other people other than God. And Romans 8 is a great reminder that you and I don't need saints to intercede for us because we have God himself interceding for us. We have the Holy Spirit interceding for us and we have Jesus interceding for us. And you see both of those ideas right here in Romans 8. I'd love to read the whole thing, but just look at Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've ever found yourself in a position where you said, I don't even know what to say to God, you don't need to beat yourself up over that because the Spirit knows what to say and He's interceding for you. Jesus, thinking about this Trinitarian picture, Jesus is also interceding. Look at uh, Romans eight thirty three. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives these, these possibilities. And he says, no, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. No one will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord who is interceding for us even as we pray. So prayer is powered by Trinitarian grace. The last reason that you should practice the spiritual discipline of prayer is that we're in a war. It's not an earthly war. It's not a war with guns and tanks and thermonuclear weapons. But it is no less real of a war. And you can read Ephesians 6 talks about the principalities and the powers that we wrestle with and Paul pleading with the Ephesians to pray for him. And I want to end with a quote that plays off of this idea and it's from a guy named John Piper. Uh, We've talked about him before from time to time. He's written a book. It's actually a book about missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. But in that book, it has one of the best chapters about prayer that I've ever read. The rest of the book is not about prayer, but he's got one chapter about prayer. And uh, even if you didn't want to read about missions, it would be worth buying the book for that one chapter. And this is kind of a long quote, but I just want you to follow along, and we're going to read it, and then uh, we'll move into a time of prayer. He says, until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter, coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters, and said, Comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished, and to that end he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. 
If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send in air cover when you or your comrades need it. But what have millions of Christians done? They have stopped believing that we're in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. What did they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. So my first point is that if we're going to mobilize a powerful prayer movement for missions or even sustain the will to pray in our own hearts, we must talk about something else first, namely war. We have so domesticated prayer that it is no longer in many of our lives and churches what it was created to be, a wartime walkie-talkie for the accomplishment of mission commands. If prayer in your life has turned into calling upstairs and asking, quote-unquote, the maid to make you more comfortable, and that's the extent of your prayer life, you've totally missed the purpose and the point. And the point is that you have access through Christ to a relationship with your Creator. And prayer is the experience of that relationship. And your Creator has given you a mission, a task, an assignment. And prayer is not the way that you just call and say, I need to be more comfortable. But prayer is the way you call and say, I need backup, I need help, I need strength, I need reinforcements. And so when you get that backwards, I think you can see pretty clearly how prayer becomes something that God never intended it to be. 